What's new, listeners? I'm Arthur Howell, the host of Two Cents Critic. If you want to move for reviews of books, movies, and TV shows, then join in. Today, we're covering the timey-wimey mindfuck of a novel, Recursion, by Blake Crouch. It came out in 2019, and it actually won the Goodreads Choice Award for Best Science Fiction back in that year. Joining me to break down this book is Dax Alanis, who was also on the show to cover Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Say hello, Dax. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening to. Yay. For our listeners, do you want to say anything about yourself to introduce yourself? A little taste of Dax. Sure. I mean, I'm a pretty, pretty normal guy. I recently got rid of any social media, so you probably won't be able to find me online anywhere besides Letterboxd uh, and then... uh, I think Goodreads and Storygraph, that's what the, yeah, Storygraph. So if you want to uh, see my thoughts on uh, movies or books, you know where to find me, Letterboxd or Storygraph. It should be at Apple Dax. Uh, but other than that, I'm a pretty uh, open book with no social media presence besides that. Yeah, social media, uh, it can get too, uh, too stressful sometimes. And I say that to someone. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like lately my mental health has actually benefited from not being online all the oh, yeah. time, aside from Reddit, but that's kind of impersonal. Whereas, like, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, like, you're kind of putting your personal details out instead of a relatively anonymous, you know, that you, you, you can get on Reddit. Uh, and even with Reddit, you know, you can focus on specific interests instead of, oh, here's what the algorithm wants you to get, wants to give yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, I'm on, yeah, I'm on social media at the moment still, just like, you know, to keep up with the news and stay connected with friends, but if there was ever a point in the future where I ended up having to cut off social media for some time, you know, I could see that happening. I mean, yeah, it's definitely a catch-22. Like, if I ever want like, to promote this podcast to my friends, I'm going to have to text it to them directly. I can't just be like, here's my Instagram story, go listen to this. Uh, so it you know it's a catch 22 uh, well again thank you so much Dax for coming back to the show and now Recursion by Blake Crouch which I had read some time ago a few years ago and this book just so stuck with me and it's been in the docket for a while to cover and I'll read the back cover for the book memory makes reality that's what NYC cop Barry Sutton is learning as he investigates the devastating phenomenon the media has dubbed false memory syndrome, a mysterious affliction that drives its victims mad with memories of a life they never lived. That's what neuroscientist Helena Smith believes. It's why she dedicated her life to creating a technology that will let us preserve our most precious memories. If she succeeds, anyone will be able to re-experience a first kiss, the birth of a child, the final moment with a dying parent. As Barry searches for the truth, he comes face-to-face with an opponent more terrifying than any disease, a force that attacks not just our minds, but the very fabric of the past. And as its effects begin to unmake the world as we know it, only he and Helena, working together, will stand a chance at defeating it. But how can they make a stand when reality itself is shifting and crumbling all around them? At once, a relentless page-turner and an intricate science fiction puzzle box about time, identity, and memory. Recursion is a thriller as only Blake Crouch could imagine it, and his most ambitious, mind-boggling, irresistible work 
date. All right, that is recursion. So let's get right into our general thoughts and feelings, not spoilery, of course, on recursion. Dax, what do you think? Oh, I, I loved it. I'm, I'm really glad that you suggested uh, to, to read it uh, for the podcast because I probably would have never you know come across it on my own. And it took me a while to read, uh, as you know, but uh, that's just a personal fault that I'm, I'm really, I have trouble focusing on reading. But uh, once I got to a certain part in the, the book, I literally could not put it down. And it, it's so good. Uh, it does subvert your expectations a little. Based off of the, the synopsis, it doesn't sound like what, what it ends up being. Because when I, when, when I went into it, uh, and for the first, I don't know, about third of the book, I had an idea of what I was thinking it was about. And then it, and it, it is that idea, but it expounds upon it in an even more dramatic way that was intense and very good. Yeah, I, I just, I was thinking back on when I first read this book, and I just remember... I don't know if I had a specific idea necessarily of where it was heading. I was just kind of flowing along with the ride when I first read this, and I just remember being really enthralled. And going back into this Forger reread, even though I knew what was coming up, it was still nice to take out the pieces and like and even remember certain parts of the story and plot that I'd forgotten. I mean, yeah. I mean, I messaged you about it uh, while I was reading it, yeah. and you know how I told you like oh, I think this could be directed by Christopher Nolan if, if he ever wanted to adapt a screenplay of it. Uh, and that was based just solely off of the, that first third that I was talking about. And then the, the, the latter part of the book, it, I mean, it still applies. It's just a different style. Uh, whereas the first part is more memento and memory-based, uh, it gets into some crazier stuff once, uh, once some certain events kick, you know, really kick yes, off. yes. Uh, well, to deliver more of my thoughts on the book, I still love it a lot, and I loved it before, I still love it now. It hooks me right in from the beginning. I appreciate being able to spend time with the main characters, with Barry and Helena. I like how the, the pacing keeps me locked in. It's well-paced as, as it cuts back and forth between their perspectives. And then as the story progresses in a certain direction, it's just like it... It throws a twist in your faces, all the, the sci-fi logic, and it builds them up. You know, as the story progresses, especially towards the end, it is like, whoa, what the hell is happening here? And I think it, it's able to do that, even though, despite the fact that it does run into some tropey sci-fi territory. And I'll go, I guess I'll, I'll, go, I'll save that for the plot breakdown, what I mean by that. But there's some, there's like some, some tropey territory where it's like, Oh, like, this isn't the deal breaker, but some cases I'm okay with this, other cases are not, where it just annoys me. This is a specific case, recursion, where I can accept the trophy territory. And I also appreciate the relationship, the dynamic that builds up between Barry and Helena as well. I was really, you know, getting invested in them, reading for them. I just like, and sometimes, though, know, I just love, I just love some good old mind you know mind fuckery sci-fi books sci-fi media in general and just really does like i feel like i've only read a few books that have made that have just messed with my brain this much i feel like there's a the gone world by tom Svedolich. that's another book that i a sci-fi book that i really enjoyed also messed with my brain a lot and i actually covered it on the podcast some time ago but recursion yeah like christopher nolan you know christopher nolan definitely 
I can see that. I, I can definitely see the link between him and the story. So I'm glad you mentioned Barry and Helena because honestly, beyond you know the, the plot being very good, I think their characterization and their their um, their relationship drives a lot of the book beyond just the great premise. Because if you you know the premise is great, it sinks its claws into you, and you know it's it's one thing and then it evolves into another thing. But if you don't care about Barry and Helena and the other thing that about about it, the way that the plot works and and the way the narrative is, you get more and more layers of their character growth to enjoy throughout the book. Definitely, yeah. You you need that character meet in there, otherwise, just what happened was a story that's just it's all style and sci-fi, time, reality. You know, messing with time and reality, it, it, it would have been all about style, but then it doesn't have the substance underneath it to actually get you gripped. And so I appreciate that the character meet there. And the ending, I do sometimes, I do sometimes feel like the ending, and, and I'll, I'll say, you know, it's a more spoilery detailed when we get into the breakdown, but I feel like the ending could have been tweaked a bit. I'll just say that, I guess, for the ending, but yeah, it could have been tweaked a bit. I mean, I like the ending. I just wish there was like, two more sentences like one or two more sentences yeah. and that's yeah. it but we'll get into that in the, the actual spoilered plot breakdown yes, yes and i should also note that i did read another book by blake Crouch, dark matter which is also a sci-fi thriller i didn't enjoy it as much i must say but it's still fairly good i do think that it does because it de- that one deals with multiversal stuff it's kind of funny, when I was reading Dark Matter, and it actually reminded me a bit of Everything I've All At Once, and it just kind of felt like, oh, like, Everything I've All At Once was more compelling, was more heart-wrenching, and I feel like Dark Matter tries to go for that level, and this book came out before, WWAO, but I feel like Dark Matter was well, I, I will definitely need to reach, uh, or uh, check out Dark Matter. I would, I would recommend Because I, I loved Recursion. Like, I would, I would venture to say it's like, if not my favorite book, it's like tied with like Dune for my favorite book oh. right now. I mean, I, I don't, I, I need to read way more. I, I, I have a bad habit of not reading as much as I should. Uh, so there's thousands and millions of books I haven't read. So take my claim with a grain of salt. But right now it feels like it's one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book. Damn, that's very nice. Good, good. Yeah. I loved it, man. It was like, for the things that I like and the, the themes that I like, it just, it it's so good. Good, good. Yeah, so... So Dark Matter, I would, yeah, I, I would recommend checking it out. Again, I wish I could have enjoyed it more, but it was still pretty good. There was another book by Blake Crouch, Upgrade, and that is his latest book, and I still need to read that on my KPR pile. I think, that, if I recall correctly, I think Upgrade deals with, like, DNA, like, DNA mutations, I think, something along those lines. Uh, okay, I'll have to check that out, too. And then another uh, semi-related... Um... Uh, for the movie lovers out there, Bong Joon-ho's next movie, Mickey 17, is based on a novel called Mickey 7, which I haven't read, but I was checking it out earlier because I was like, should I read this before the movie comes out? Because, you know, it, it's always complicated reading a book before a movie comes out because you never know if the movie's going to live up to it. Like, I'm thinking of ending things. Some people love that movie. I hated the movie because the book was so good and the movie just doesn't add anything new to it that makes it better because to me that book was like thrilling and the movie is like if you've already read the book you know what to expect and the ideas aren't as new so with mickey 17 and mickey 7 
I want to read the book, but the reason I also bring it up is because I, when I was looking it up, one of the reviews I read on Amazon uh, said it was reminiscent of Blake Crouch's Dark Matter. Oh, which is why I bring oh, it up. Oh, okay. I I, ha- I hadn't heard of that before. That's bank. Okay, very interesting to know. I mean, it's Bong Joon Ho, man. After Parasite, I'm I'm up for whatever he oh, wants yeah, to make. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, I haven't read the book, but I watched the movie, and that was a slog for me. I think I I remember complaining about it even on, even in our Discord server. I was like, "Oh, this is such a slog. Why am I watching this? It feels so long." It's a great book, but the movie did not do it justice, in my opinion. Like I said, some people love the movie, but I, I mean, I want to read the book. So it's a great book. Charlie Kaufman is a great writer. That one just didn't connect for me. Uh, well, I feel like we've been delivering a lot of thoughts and opinions on recursion. So now, time for us to give our wind-up scores. Now, this is the score that ranges from 0 to 100. So, Dax, what is your wind-up score? Honestly, I think I'm probably going to go 97, 98, around that range. Damn, very nice, very nice. I love this book, man. It was really good. Yes, yes. Oh, you know, I'll go for 95 out of 100. A very high score for a book that has held up well for me. I loved it back then, like I said before. I still love it now. I think even I think if I recall correctly on Goodreads, I might have it listed on a, a shelf for all-time favorite books, and I think I might have it on there. I'll have to double-check that. If it isn't on there, I'll have to add it on, because it's definitely one of my all-time favorite books. Again, it brings me what I want when it comes to the kind of science fiction. It's all twisty and turny and just, oh, gets my heart pumping. Oh, yeah, no, the, the premise is so good. <gasps> the only thing that keeps it from 100 for me is, is like I said, the, that ending, if, it, if just, you gave me just a tiny bit more, just one or two more sentences, sure, sure. might have been 100. Nice. Oh, wow. Those are our wind-up scores now for Recursion by Blake Crouch. Highly recommend you go out and read it. And now I'll give the trigger warnings for the book before you head into the plot breakdown. And those trigger warnings are suicide, suicide attempt, murder, shower death, car accident, dementia, war, grief, drug abuse, mental illness, and a school shooting. And school shootings are minor part of the trigger warnings, but definitely like emphasis on the suicide part because uh, that's spread through, through a lot of the book. Speaking of which, I just I guess I should also note this is also a very dark sci-fi book as well, and it's like, oh my god! Like I I kind of forgot that when I was reading this, I so like certain parts I was like, oh I forgot it gets this grim. It's definitely uh, not lighthearted, um, no. but I think it's the darkness of the story serves the purpose that it needs to to make the story as enthralling oh, yeah. as it needs oh, yeah, to be. Yeah, it's not, it's not a bad thing. I wasn't saying like it's, it's a bad thing, but it's like still, like, you know, it, it's there. Just, you know, prepare yourself for it. This is not some joyous ride, you know. But yes, okay, so now trigger warnings have been delivered, so now we can go into the plot breakdown for listeners. If you haven't read Recursion yet, maybe you should go out and read it, and you can pause the podcast. But if you have read the book already, or you haven't, but you're okay with spoilers, then you can stay right here. And, okay, recursion. So, let's start off with Barry. Barry Sutton's POV first. And this is in 2018, and she tries to save a woman and Ross Peters from uh, jumping off a building, and she is suffering from FMS, or false memory syndrome. And she remembers, like, the false memories of a life with 
with her, her husband and son and Vermont and just like, even like the, all of the smallest, most intimate details, but her son is gone in this reality. And something I really appreciate about this book in particular is when people are feeling these memories or when when when, when, when following the characters as they're being shifted between realities, this, this book, Blake House, really puts a lot of attention on the sensual details, just like how things smell or how or how they sound or how they feel, how they look, and even like the colors. Like this book makes a lot of references to the to the dead memories being gray. So you mentioned reality shift, and that this early in the book, I didn't think that was going to be what it was happening. I honestly thought this early in the book, until a certain thing happens, we'll we'll get to in a little bit. I honestly thought it was just it was a movie about or not not movie <laughs> book uh, about false memories and inserting them and trying to control the world through those false memories. And it honestly, I thought at that point was going to be kind of a subtextual reading of you know reality now with deep fakes and you know how you can't trust anything you see. You have to make sure that everything is real, and you can't just trust your your you know your first instinct and your first gut reaction. You have to make sure that everything is on the up and up. So you were definitely going into this book with some different expectations. I feel like, oh, must have shown you for loops and to really, when it hits a certain point, it's like, oh, we're going in this direction now. I mean, I don't mind that it went the direction it did, but I would like to see a book or a movie that deals with what the first, I think it was what the first third of the, of the book does, where it's just about memories and reality and based off of just that. That's an interesting concept. And the concept it does go with later is just as interesting. It's just a different direction. Mm, yes, I'd be, I'd be curious about that alternative version as well. Yes, yes. Well, that's that's also another thing is uh, I t- uh, when I was reading, I took some notes and this and, and in hindsight, it does have um, it does it does play a little differently knowing what it ends up being about. But so, for example, I highlighted this. Because memory is everything. Physically speaking, a memory is nothing but a specific combination of neurons firing together, a symphony of neural activity. But in actuality, it's the filter between us and reality. You think you're tasting this wine, hearing the words I'm saying in the present, but there's no such thing. The neural impulses from your taste buds and your ears get transmitted to your brain, which processes them and dumps them into working memory. So by the time you know you're experiencing something, it's already in the past, already a memory. Yes, I I remember that. Yes, and you know it, where the book end up ends up going. It de- that definitely plays differently. But from where I was in that first third of the book, I'm like, okay, this is about controlling reality because you can control memories, and that is where the book does end up going, but in a yeah. different <laughs> in a different yeah. way. And uh, general, I just. You know, I said before I love like the mind fuckery, timey wimey kind of science fiction, reality shifting, and and I also just note I also love science fiction that evolves around memories as well. I feel like you, you have a lot of ground there to just really create some interesting stories. And then I also have a quote here to read that goes, "All my memories from that life are in shades of gray, like film noir stills. They feel real, but are haunted phantom memories." I just feel like even just a quote like that really gives a, a sensual facet of what this is like. And even like film noir still, like I feel like there are other times, this isn't the only, time, the only example of the book describing the dead memories like that, like film noir, which I really appreciate. 
for sure. I mean, and then to that point, crap, what was I going to say? I was going to read another uh, another thing I highlighted that kind of goes back to uh, what I'm, you know, the philosophy themes of this book. So the quote goes that consciousness is a result of environment. Our cognitions, our idea of reality, are shaped by what we can perceive, by the limitations of our senses. We think we're seeing the world as it really is, but you, of all people, know. It's all just shadows on the cave's wall, and that allusion to Plato's allegory of the, you know, the, the cave and the shadows on the wall, and what you know, what you're really seeing. It it just oh, it's such a oh, I love this book, man. It's so good. Ooh, yeah, I, I I didn't I didn't catch that allusion to Plato, but yeah, I do I do love that. So Barry tries to synthesize with Anne by bringing up his own deceased daughter Megan, but Anne is like, well, at least your daughter once existed in this world. My son isn't even here. And this reality, you know, with the memories that I'm possessing, then Anne jumps off the building. So, yeah, just kicking off the book right there with a suicide. Yeah, that was definitely unexpected. I, I, uh, I didn't think it'd get that dark that quick. <laughs> yep, and there's more that to come. And then Barry goes out with his ex-wife, Julia, to celebrate what would have been her daughter's 26th birthday. And so Barry is dealing with grief over his daughter, and also just feeling like, oh, you know, he's, he's holding out of what ifs over his wife and wishing they could have stayed together and feeling like she isn't a woman that she used to know. It is really, it, this book is able to pull you in to Barry and the Barry character really quickly. In that and I want to make a note uh, for the listeners, because of the way that the, the story works, I want you to think of this moment with his wife as the beginning of the book. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. That's proper. And then so for so for FMS, so on, and then so Barry is learning more about FMS. People are talking about this. It's uh, passing through the news and it's theorized that when someone is infected with it, that the people they know catch it too. Apparently cases of deja vu on the rise as well. And I wonder I I can't I can't imagine what that would be like because basically the whole syndrome is like, you know, you've got your one set of memories and then you've got the other set of memories, the false memories that just contain this whole life that you've apparently never lived. And I do wonder, I feel like this book doesn't cover it, but I feel like there would be a significant sector of people who would actually enjoy this, because I feel like this book focuses more on the people who are devastated by this, who just can't handle all of this psychological weight, all of, this, all of, all of these memories, and they end up killing themselves. But I feel like there, a lot of, there would be a lot of people who would enjoy it, who would get like a high off of it. I mean, it's definitely a complex conversation to have. It goes back to what I was saying about how you're experiencing reality and, and, and you know, what the book says and what, uh, what it provides to you. Uh, let me see. I have some other notes. Two things. So, one, when every memory contains a universe, what does simple even mean? Granted, that has more to do with Helena and when they're researching memories. Uh, and then the other one was... He thinks perhaps there's a reason our memories are kept hazy and out of focus. Maybe their abstraction serves as an, an, an anesthetic, a buffer protecting us from the agony of time and all that it steals and erases. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's it's good. It's a good thing to be in, in the moment and uh, not not so much dwelling on the past, which we'll learn later in the book. Uh, sometimes your memories and changing things aren't always good. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. It, this book definitely is deals with those themes of like, you know, let, let go of the past, you know, let go of the nostalgia, 
which I have some thoughts on, but I'll wait to deliver my thoughts on those for, for later. And then I think we before we move on with Barry's side of the plot, maybe we should touch on Helena's it's, side of the plot. Funny, that, keep in mind there are. It's funny that you say that because I was actually going to talk about Helena next. Yeah, but and I, I guess I should, I should also note this book was definitely one of the more one of the more complex books for me to take notes on because the way this book is formatted is that it keeps jumping back and forth between Barry and Helena's perspectives. It does until they eventually meet, and then the plot gets more linear. But it was just like taking notes. It was like okay, take these notes here, and then even when I was finished with the book, I had to go through the notes and condense some of the plots. Well, so even with that, um, the reason why I had that reading of the book early on, where you know, oh, this is about memories and somebody controlling the world through injecting false memories and making people think what they what he wants them or she wants them to really feel or think. Uh, goes to that plot device of of Barry being in 2018 and Helena being in 2007. Yeah, yeah. I thought that you know Helena was going to be manipulated to create you know this this thing that can control memories, and she does in a way, but it it it's being used in a way you will not expect yeah, yet. Yeah. yeah. So Helena. So we have her perspective, and the thing is driving her is her mom, who has Alzheimer's. So she's on this quest to create technology that can. I'm not sure if she's. I'm. I'm, I'm not sure if she truly feels like she could cure her mom, but at the very least, she has a personal motivation to create this technology to save other people. At the very least, you know, to recover some memories, and she ends up getting some aid from Marcus Slade, who is basically this Tony Stark-esque business figure, a billionaire, and he's like, hey, you know, come over to my, come over to my station, my oil rig out of the ocean. Where I have this huge private lab that you can build your technology on. And this lab, by the way, is called Fox Station in honor of Guy Fox because disrupting the status quo is Slade's thing. And the first thing it made me think of was, was the, the so called disruptors in Grass Onion. I mean, uh, Marcus Slade is more, think of Elon Musk's evilness with Tony Stark's brain. Uh, more so than just Tony Stark, because Marcus is, Marcus Slade true. is not a good true, person. True, true. Uh, also, you could also question Tony Stark's morals as well at certain points, you know? Well, it, it, before he becomes Iron Man, for sure, he's not necessarily a good person. Yeah, yeah. So Helena goes to work at the station, is working on the technology to map your brain, and it takes the form of this memory share. I would say, I remember listening to a podcast some time ago about this book. And I remember one of the comments that the podcast was made was that they thought it was kind of, they thought it was kind of funny how this share doesn't even get a, a name, like a specific name. It's just called a memory share. And I do agree with that. Like they, don't, they don't come up with a specific invention sci-fi name for it. It's just the memory share or the share. They keep referring to it that way. Sometimes simplicity uh, is elegant. Sure, sure, yeah. So the share gets constructed. Then for Barry, on his side of things, he goes to speak with this other guy, with this Joe guy. Well, uh, let's take a step uh, back for a second. So after the Ann Voss-Peters incident, he goes to the police station and looks into uh, Ann Voss-Peters' claim that her husband in this fake memory had a wife who committed suicide first. And then uh, that's why she was committing suicide, because he was she was hoping that her husband, in these oh, false memories... It, would come save her. I think she tried to jump off, but he saved her, right? I think if I recall correctly. According to her memories. According to her memories. Yes. 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 According to her memories. But we'll find out 
Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Wait, that's the crazy thing about memories is now my memories are getting jumbled too. Uh, no, in her memories, her husband's wife does die. We'll find out that in when Barry goes to uh, the police station, he pulls up the police report. The wife did right. not die. Okay, that, that's okay. In this reality, yes, he saved her. Okay, and then and then Barry. And so that's where he goes to investigate in Montauk. Yes, and w- went to speak with him, but he denies ever having known Anne Peters. And then after that is when Barry suffers his own FMS attack. And an alternate version of the past, three days, goes through his memory. A version where he never tried to save Anne, where he didn't meet Joe, and his memories are gray, lifeless, like Anne had talked about. And so now it's like, oh, did he catch this from her? Well, see, see that, until I knew what was going on later, I thought that somebody was using the, the, you know, the memory controlling thing on him and inserting those to draw them off the tail, which they kind of do, but it's different from what I thought it was initially. I thought it was like a like a like a ray gun, for lack of a better word, that somebody could shoot and insert those you know those fake memories. It ends up being a lot more complicated than that. Yes, yes. And then back to Helena, who is still working on her share, and she even uses it. And then the other employees are also recording their own memories. And there's a whole mechanic for there's a whole mechanic for the share where you have to use a specific strong memory. In order to well, and then before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, we should note that at this point, when they're mapping these memories, it's just very basic. Like you're you're kind of reliving a movie. Yeah. It's very simple. Very simple. We say simple, but like you know, you're still you know X-raying a brain as it's relatively working, simple, and it's a lot of to what happens there. Um, where it's going to go. So right now it's it's straightforward, but you know Marcus is like this isn't good enough. I know that you want to use this now to cure your mom, but this isn't what I want. We're going to keep going. Keep baby. going. Keep going. He wants a completely immersive version of the show. And she also wants to publish an article on this tech and get it out in the world so she can preserve the memories that her mom has left. And it's also worrisome about like oh what if a day comes when Slay stops Helena from using the memory, the memory show. Because he wants to keep it secret. He doesn't want her to like publish anything about this, about this technology. No, no. And you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, and being a little tiny bit nitpicky, calling him Slade probably wasn't the best way to go about it because it's just too on the nose evil. <laughs> like, like you know he's a bad guy. But that's being nitpicky. It's still a you know it's still yes, amazing. Yes. But you know, tiny little detail like oh. This guy's name is Slade. He's probably not a good guy. Yeah, yeah. I'll just know. Sure, sure. I can get that. Personally, I'm like, eh, it's all right. Like, it's, on, it's all right. Early on, I didn't think anything of him besides, you know, something's up with his name. Yeah. He, he doesn't seem that bad right now. And then when he pushes for the chair to be evolved beyond its initial function that Helena wants, I'm like, yeah, this guy's a little yeah, sketch yeah. here. Oh, also, the technology... Uh, the, te- the technology also involves, aside from like, oh, using a strong, a specific strong memory to activate things, they also have this deprivation tank that you always have to use, and stopping a t- stopping the subject's heart, and using DMT, and there were points where I'm like, wait, does this science fiction really make any sense? But for the most part, I'm like, eh, let's go along with it. I feel like sometimes even like with Inception, like, you know, it's like, eh, does this really make sense at certain points? Was like using the drugs to put the subject to sleep. 
but I'm just like, eh. I mean, in Inception, it's more of a, it's more of an offense, quote unquote, uh, because it kind of invalidates their own logic of, oh, because you're falling, you, you're the uh, the liquid in your ear canals wakes you up, and then it's just real. It, it it does invalidate itself a little bit more if you really critically think about it. With this one. I mean, I, 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 my, my, my sense of disbelief is still pretty intact. Yeah. I mean, from what I, I mean, I'm no, I'm no neuroscientist, but from what we, uh, what we casually understand about DMT, it holds up to what, you know, to, to scrutiny in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's, it's not a big thing. It's just like, you know, something I got to point out, you know, it's like, but not a big issue. Not like, oh, I can't stand this. Oh no. What I'm curious about. How does the, the the deprivation chamber work for somebody like me that has tinnitus? Because I wanted to do a deprivation chamber in real life, but my friend suggested, "Hey, you probably shouldn't do that with your tinnitus because it'll bug the hell out of you." Because you know, it, deprivation chamber is supposed to be completely silent. Oh. And if you have tinnitus, how does that work? So, how would the memory chair work with its deprivation chamber? Would would it just not work if you have tinnitus because you're not fully immersed? Maybe. Oh, I hadn't I hadn't known about that about tinnitus having an impact uh, like that. Yeah, no. Because whenever it's quiet, I I want to die. Oh. So I really want to experience a deprivation chamber, but probably not the best idea if if, if you have tinnitus. Okay. So then Bailey gets a call back from Joe, who we met with earlier, and Joe is suffering from FMS and saying Fanny's a former wife. The other wife had committed suicide, and apparently he says they, like some, someone, they, they threatened him and knew more than they should, and they took Joe to this all-night diner and secret hotel, and he gives his location to Barry. So then Barry goes to the hotel, which, by the way, is called Hotel Memory. Another on-the-nose name. I mean, to be fair, this hotel is supposed to be for millionaires and billionaires, so... I don't think they really care too much about what it's called. <gasps> and it's only for them, so it's secret, so nobody knows this the name of the hotel yeah. anyways, besides yeah. them. But after this hotel memory, Barry goes here, and then he gets escorted off, and then he passes out, and then wakes up and finds this man that he's never seen before beside him. And this old guy, he's got this long beard and apparently stark blue eyes and very intense air, and he's asking questions about the last few days. And then he says, now tell me about the last time you saw your daughter alive, and don't leave out a single detail. So we've got that happening, and then we've also, over for Helena's side of things, they're still doing more of the test subject stuff, they brought in this test subject uh, named Reed, who is a heroin addict. And I was like, damn, this is so unethical, what Slade is doing here, and also paying the, paying $20,000 a week to partake in this. And this is just like, this is very exploitative. No, don't be doing this. No, no. So doing experimenting on Reed. And then this is when the reality is shifting. Let's take a second right there. Before that, so they're doing the test on Reed. And then Helena and the person who's also in the room with her, her, her one of the other scientists that uh, that have stayed. Because at this point, rem uh, remember, um, Slade openly tells everyone on the rig, we're going to kill him if you want out this is your time. So almost all the scientists leave besides, I think, I think it was three or five. It was Raj, right. Sergey, right. Helena, Marcus's uh, Korean assistant that I can't remember the name of right now. 
and then Marcus himself. Oh, uh, oh, oh, so they're running the experiment. Yeah, Jiwoon. Yeah, Jiwoon. Um, so they're running the experiment. They kill him. And then uh, Sergei and Helena freak out uh, and they try to break the glass. And then that's where the chapter starts, stops. And you flash forward to Barry in the deprivation chamber. Yes, yes. So all you know is that the heroin addict is dead and Barry's in the deprivation yes. chamber. Yes. And then so as he as Barry comes out of that, then he feels this whole this, this whole world which is being built around him, all these sensations just flowing into his soul. And he's now reliving the memory of the last time he saw Megan when she was alive, apparently. And again, the senses. I just again I just love like how sensually this is written as it's happening. Then he's like, Oh, I'm inside the memory. I'm able to move around it somehow. I at this point he's kind of thinking like, Oh, I'm just inside the memory, but He's not fully realizing, like, oh, I mean, like, this is reality. Things have gotten really strange now. He ends up, and he ends up being able to save his daughter because originally she had gotten killed in a hidden run. But then he's able to stop her and and save her. And now it's like even the memory, once it happens, the memory of finding a corpse is fading and graying in his mind. And then, so I have another uh, note that I made that was relatively around this point in the book. Time is an illusion, a construct made out of human memory. There's no such thing as the past, the present, or the future. It's all happening now. And this brings up another thing that I didn't take a note on, but I do vividly remember um, when Marcus was talking to Helena about uh, memory. You know, he, he says that our perception, you know, when we, when according to the theory of evolution, which personally I believe in, you know, the, the primordial beings that were in the oceans, you know, their perception of light was you know, immediate. So your senses only need to be so finely attuned to be able to react to predators when, you know, light is literally just immediate. And the beans first came onto shore and there was more light. That's created a catalyst for the evolution of consciousness. And when you have this much light, but you still only have the immediacy of your sensations, that's what creates this concept of quote unquote memories and this what's the word I'm looking for, the the sealing off of time. Because, you know, in the theoretical physics, supposedly, you know, we'll say that time is the fourth dimension, you know, like an interstellar where you can interact, interact with time at all moments. So are we as three-dimensional beings because of evolution, because, you know, we, we only react to, sensitive, to stimuli through this memory period? So just an interesting thing to think about. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I feel like uh, I feel like I haven't really brushed up on, on physics in a while, but I was getting more into physics when I was younger, I remember, but I feel like this, you know, reading stuff like recursion does get those neurons firing in my brain. Oh yeah. This book is so good, man. Yes. And then also I want to point out that when, that, that quote you had read about the time is an illusion quote, that was said by someone named Vince, who meets him, who so who approaches him in this reality where he just saved Megan, approaches him because this is the same guy who was also with him at Hotel Memory. Which is actually, I'm glad you're bringing that up because that that character is super trivial, but he's actually really important because at that point, you can't tell yourself, oh, he's just living in a simulation or some some contained field. There's another character that was in the future that has also traveled back and tell and, and is telling him, this is real. You're not, you're not in this by yes, yourself. Yes, because at, by this point, Vince has already lived here for three years. And he also warns Barry, don't game the system. 
and don't tell anyone about what happened. Also, you can't go back to the future because the technology for that hasn't even been invented yet. Basically, you know, just give a little more of the exposition there, but... And then for Helena, I'll just go back to Helena for a bit, because then, so after that whole reality shifting, right about when she was about to smash the window with the chair, you also go back to her when Slade is, like, with her in her apartment, and then he turns on the TV to show Reed getting a tattoo of the name Miranda, and then Fisher self jumping back here to this point, saying Slade's mom's name. And then Helena and Slade get nosebleeds as a symptom of this reality shifting, which nosebleeds happen a lot. And Helena is also able to call a gray memory of watching Reed enter the deprivation tank. And so, and I think, I, I've been saying dead memory a lot, but I feel like I haven't, I don't think I've explained that yet. Because dead memories are basically just the memories from the old timelines, the timelines that have been wiped out. Like with, uh, like with Barry, having the dead memory of Megan's death. Yeah, I mean, to, to expound upon that, uh, I don't know if we really covered that. Essentially, the memory chair works to transport you through time, through your memories, which goes back to that conversation or that, you know, what I was saying earlier about how, you know, we've evolved to only experience reality in the moment in of the memory, whereas time is just a construct of memory, whereas it's all happening all at the same time. And that's what the book kind of plays at. Uh, so that is... So that's book one. By the way, so this book is split up into multiple parts called books. So we've got book one, and now we're in book two. Barry's in 2007 again. Yes. Helena remembers the memory shift, and is a, if I remember correctly, she's appalled. She, oh, yeah. She thinks this is a, a gross abuse of power. Definitely, and she, she thinks that. And when, when Slade theorizes, there's a point when Slade theorizes that every moment in reality is happening at once, and that we're simply experiencing it all in sequential order, it did remind me of the Einstein quote, the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once. And there's even a quote kind of like that that opens one of the other parts, one of the other books in Recursion. And then Slater reveals the first time they met him and Helena back when he'd been working for her at this company as a research assistant for her. We'll learn more about that uh, later on. Well, I just want to make a note for the readers. When Marcus tells Helena about their first meeting, it was in 2018, when Barry was originally yes, yes. from. A lot of time crap to keep in mind, the timelines. <gasps> okay, yeah, so there was an experiment at that time when, when Slade was working as an assistant for Helena. They had done an experiment, kind of like the one they did on Reed, on someone else, but when that subject's consciousness had been sent back to his memory of a car crash that killed his wife years ago, he ended up dying back then. And so that was accidental doing that. So then... Slade, using that knowledge, used the share to travel back to 1992, and that's when he kicked off a whole new alternate timeline for the world to follow, and that's when he ended up building his company on this alternate timeline. I did think it was kind of funny when Helena was, said, you've basically been stalking me since you started the second timeline, and Marcus was like, I think stalking is a bit hyperbolic, and she said, I'm sorry, are we on a decommissioned oil rig in the middle of the Pacific that you built solely for me, or did I miss something? <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's a good point. This book, it's not, it's not really, I don't, I don't think I call it funny per se, but there are little bits and pieces like that that are like, oh, that's a, that's a chuckle out of me. So Barry, Barry is still, he's just returned home, he's with his daughter, he's still married to Julia, he lives through his life. There's a moment where he's able to, it would point out how he's able to remember the big things, like his mom dying from, from, like, from cancer, but at least he knows to appreciate the time with her. Which I, I, I like that, you know, I feel like, you know, that's a, if you know that, if you have that knowledge, 
of what's going to happen in the future, you know, you'd be more appreciative of the time you, you, you're able to spend with your loved one. Granted, counterpoint to that, that you could also say you could apply that attitude at all times. I mean, our present is the future's past. Wait, so like, what, what do you mean by that specifically, though? So essentially, like, you know, you said, uh, if you have that knowledge that, you know, your, your parent was going to die, that you should be more, pre- that you would be more appreciative of that time. The flip side of that is, you know, whether or not you know that you should be appreciating oh. the, the moment because the present is the future's past. Okay. Okay. I see. Okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. I see that. And it, I mean, to that point, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of like, um, one of the thematic through lines of the book is like, you know, always live in the moment and, you know, don't think about changing the past because of the unintended consequences that we'll see later yes, in yes. the book. <laughs> so now Slate revealed that Reed has died earlier. Yes, that was revealed. So that version of events is specifically Reed getting the tattoo never happens because he changed that memory when he died in the tank. And so the memory of Reed dying for real, then, okay, so something happens, so it goes into everyone's brain. So now, okay, so something that happens throughout the book is that those specific time points when the dead memories will just hit everyone's brains. And that's when, like, the nosebleeds happen, when everyone is is remembering these other timelines. This happens with Reed, apparently, when he had died on the other timeline. This ends up sending him to the point where he hangs himself. And... So the moment where Slade is like, well, I gotta kill myself to reset the timeline and bring him back to life. And Helena is like, he, well, he made the choice to end his life. I think we should respect that. And Slade is like, not while he's still under my employee. And I'm like, well, Slade, you're so determined, aren't you? But I also do feel like there are some interesting morals about that. Like, if just like not even just, just for this specific situation, but just in general, for like if he had the power to reverse, to, to wipe out someone committing suicide like that, a tragic situation like that, when you take that power, when you take that moment to, to do it, even if there are some gray morals in that situation. What do you think? It's, it's definitely an interesting conversation that uh, I'm glad I don't have to worry about too much in real life. Yes, yes. Because it's, it's definitely a very, there's shades of gray in the morality there because I mean, like Helena says, he made that decision, but morally speaking, do you allow someone to kill themselves if you know you can stop it? Yeah, yeah. But there's also the other flip side of that where Marcus is just being a dirty capitalist who doesn't actually care about, you know, the heroin addict's death. He just wants him as a guinea pig for these memory experiments. He doesn't care about him killing himself because he's a moral person. He just wants his guinea pig. Yeah, definitely. Like for some, yeah, for, for Slade's personal motivations, it's just like, yeah, you know, that's a that's scummy. But for someone who has actually like who cares for someone, like who has a personal motivation, morals that are more understandable, more sympathetic, then it's like, okay, I can understand this action more. Now Helena is forming a plan to escape the rig and Slade's grasp, and so with the tank and the DMT, she sends herself from two thousand nine back to. October 22nd, 2007, specifically to the meeting when Ji-Woon, that Ji-Woon had with her to make the whole proposal of, hey, come over to the, to the oil rig. And so now her plan is to run away from Slade, and she does just that, fleeing, traveling up to Canada, and then to Alaska, working as a research assistant, just passing time. 
Also, during that, she also keeps potassium chloride tablets with her, and this little silver locket, just in case you need to kill herself and prevent her entail from leaking. It's just like, yeah, that's some, that's some planning right there. Uh, it, well, I mean, we'll find out later that, uh, a little bit futile. Yes, yes. Oh, it, it, was, it was also heartbreaking when she also went to visit her mom at the adult care facility, and by that point, Helena had spent three years at this new timeline. It was even just a, a moment where her mom has some clarity and, it, and is able to remember her daughter. It, it passes by very quickly, though, and it's just like, oh, you know, it, it, reminds, you, it reminds you of what's been driving Helena all this time. You know, it, it got some emotions out of me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so then, back to Barry now, because then some shit's gonna happen here. So back to Barry, from 2010 to 2018, life is just, you know, pretty ordinary for him. He's spending time with his family, and he and Julia do end up splitting up. And he realizes now, like, oh, so he and Julia were just kind of doomed. You know, it wasn't happening any other timeline just because of Megan's death. You know, it was kind of like, oh, they were gonna, they, they would have broken up anyways. Yeah, it just accelerates their divorce. Then, which then kind of makes you think, you know, kind of like a, a trope you see, science fiction and time travel in general, where it's like, oh, you know, some events, some events were, were fated to happen across multiple timelines. I mean, I, I get the complaint about the trope, but I think it, it works here, especially with the payoff that happens towards the end of the book that we'll get to. So I, I don't find it to be that bad of a trope, uh, yeah. especially because it's touched on in a very real human emotional way at the end of at towards it the is, end of yeah. the book when I, when I when i did say earlier about tropey territory just was not one of the elements i was talking about yes i, I thought it was i thought it was a pretty well handled here this particular sci-fi cliche and then and boss peter as we get back to her because then she jumps off the same building as before even from like the, the 41st floor just like before julia gets fms recording the other life where megan had died and she had married some other guy, because now tonight is the night at this point when Barry was sent back into the memory of the last time he saw Megan alive. And then Barry is like, oh shit, Megan is remembering her own death. So they get her, they grab her, like she isn't dead right now, they grab her, she's, just, she's overwhelmed by the memories, and he confesses all the, the, the reality timey-wimey crap to Julia and Megan. There's a big FMS event happening. A lot, of them, a lot of people around them, like, suffering these headaches and nosebleeds. Suddenly, there's a building that pops up, this, U-shape, this U-shaped building that just pops up out of nowhere that's called the Big Bend. And the architect of this building ends up getting killed off because he was actually at Hotel Memory, and he had talked about having uh, architect aspirations. And he gets killed off because he had gained the system, which Vince said earlier to Barry, hey, don't do that. Hello listeners, this is Arthur, the host of Two Cents Critic. I'm here to tell you about Zencaster, the very service that helps me record my show. Out of all the potential options out there, I picked Zencaster because of the brief views and the basic things that I need to record are available for free, which is handy for someone like me, someone who isn't brimming with money that I can spend on extra podcast features. It really is incredibly easy to record a podcast with Zencaster, you can just log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. And Zencaster's multi-layered backups will ensure that you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. 
And if you thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencasters, all in one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code 2CC discount. That is 2 to number 2. And you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. And then Megan ends up killing herself. Not even just like that, but also like because she, she had used vodka and pills and then lost consciousness and then apparently something caught on fire. So then it set like, her apartment on fire and a few other people died as well. Which, did you predict this was happening? Because I remember if I, when I first read this book, I don't think I quite saw this happening, her killing herself after suffering the trauma of the FMS. I mean, speaking about this now, it does give me one kind of minor complaint, is that from the logic established, I don't understand why Megan would get the memories considering she wasn't on the old timeline. It's a minor complaint. It just, it kind of plays really fast and loose with the rules that the the book establishes earlier on that, uh, you know, you would get the dead memories from a pat from a past timeline, but it would only make sense. That would happen if you were there on that past timeline, if you were dead from the logic, the book establishes, I, I don't think you would, you would be getting the memories, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a nitpick. Interesting. E- even if it was just a memory of her getting hit and in the, in the hit and run, even if it was just that, yeah, I mean that that would that would be okay, but I think the way that the book is, explains it doesn't she get the memories like everything? I don't know. Mm. I I might be misremembering. I, uh, no, I'm not sure. I just remember I thought I I didn't remember I didn't run into any hiccups when I was for logic when I was reading Jazz Plots. I thought it was okay, but but that's minor. Um, w- with the way that the book also establishes how people uh, you know feel psychologically after the fake memories uh, come back, it does kind of makes sense that she does end up wanting to commit suicide. Yes, yes. And I think, okay, so I, I, I guess now would be a good time to say about what I grabbed to have was the tropey territory because the book is basically, hey, you've got to get let go of the past, let go of the people you love, don't make huge changes like this in the timeline. And uh, I feel this cliche does pop up a lot, you know, like I said before, in science fiction. And I feel like it, it, it bugs me. Not always a deal breaker. Sometimes, you know, like, again, Recursion is a great book. I love it. So I can accept it here. Other cases, it annoys me more. And it annoys me because I feel like, uh, I feel like it, just, it just comes from such a, a deeply conservative mindset that is intensely fearful of breaking the status quo. And I'm just like, well, if you had the power to, to go back in time and save someone, like, save a loved one, you know, couldn't you just do that? Or if you had the power to prevent a disaster from happening, wouldn't you take the power to chance to do that? And yes, it, it, it could cause some big time ripples, some, some, uh, some huge shockwaves through time and reality. But couldn't, wouldn't that be worth it? I don't know. Like, I, I, and I guess that's more of a, more of a, but, a radical well, viewpoint. So that, but... Well, so that, that plays on to the, uh, what happens a little later on, and I think in book three or yeah book three or four when uh when uh helena ends up somewhere else 
and she she meets the character that she meets and they're having that discussion and she just more or less flats out states the good that may come of it is is fine but i don't think this should exist at all i think that that the chair should be yeah done and, and, which... and, I, and i get and i get that the book does present that does present those consequences on a on an apocalyptic scale yes but i just kind of like well what if it wasn't apocalyptic you know what if what if the consequences could be just pretty you know just overall positive optimistic you know and i get and again like it's a cliche it's just you know it's just a cliche that i see a lot in science fiction where it is like oh look so you could ruin the world if you save someone or if you stop the holocaust and it's like you could be a little more optimistic than that i mean even a another example i can think of is a Eleven twenty two sixty three by Stephen King, which is actually like I actually do have a lot of love for that book. It's actually probably is one of my favorite time travel books. But that also does fall into the same messaging where it's like, oh, don't mess with time, don't save people, don't uh, don't prevent big disasters because otherwise it will set off this whole chain of other disasters. And it's like, again, what's wrong with breaking the status quo and just like couldn't be couldn't it be more optimistic than that? <gasps> Again, you know, it's a little gripe, you know, that expresses, you know. Mm-hmm. What, about, what about you? Does, does that cliche bother you in particular, or no? I mean, it doesn't bother me too much, just because it, it's, it's rooted in that concept of the butterfly effect. You know, if a butterfly flaps its wings, a hurricane or a tornado forms somewhere else in the wor- world. And, it, and, you know, it's just it's that time travel effect. Like, you know, if you do stop the Holocaust, you save 12 million people or, or 12, 11 million people. But then, you know, maybe a billion other people never get born because of it. I get what you're saying, but I also get the other aspect of it where you never know the unintended consequences. So it, it is, it's a complicated thing. Yeah, yeah. And then Barry returns to Hotel Memory. It pointed out how he visited it 11 years earlier chronologically, although what happens, you know, the events of that happened today and a false memory, tiny windy shit. Then finally, he meets Helena. He runs into her, and she warns him, like, hey, he told her in the future four months from now about what happens. So, yay, finally, they meet, and we kick off book three. Which, like, I, when I reread this book, I was like, come on, I want them to meet. But finally, yes, they do. It takes some time. I, I don't mind that it takes a while, because then what happens in books three and four and five are really good. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, yeah, so, so now they're together. Okay, so Helena had tracked down Barry after learning of FMS in 2016, and she knew, knew it was connected to Slade because once 2009 had hit, that's when Slade regained all the false memories from working with Helena, and again, on the f- false timeline into the dead memories. So he had enough information to rebuild the memory share without Helena's help on the oil rig. And so Helena and Barry, they tried to pull off this whole mission, they're going into Slade's hotel. There's like a SWAT team that goes in there and they have tried to evade them. And when they're going into that hotel, they also get killed multiple times. It becomes almost like a, like a time loop situation. Helena even makes this little cut on her arm to be like, oh, this is like a, a checkpoint because you need to create a strong enough memory in order to go back to that point so they can run the loop over and over. And it's funny because like, Right when she does that and says this is to create a checkpoint, the chapter ends and they they basically start right again from that point. <laughs> yeah, again, like you know, time loop stuff, which I you know I do love. I do love me some time loops. Yes, yes. And then also Slade also tries to convince Helena of all the good that the chair can accomplish. 
but she insists it's too risky and it could lead to humanity's destruction. Oh, and remember that guy who put Barry in his tank back when he first visited Hotel Memory? You know, the guy with the long beard and the stark blue eyes, the intense air. Well, that was Slade himself. Yes, an order of Slade who did that. And Helena, after all of these attempts, Helena ends up being able to escape. Barry gets shot in the process. Then we go into book four. And then this is when Helena gets, gets detained by DARPA. And so she ends up working with this little with this little organization within DARPA that has taken over Hotel Memory, and they end up doing their own missions in order to, like, you know, prevent, for example, like a school shooting. There's a, a school shooting that they prevent. What do you think about this whole plot, about the, the missions they're pulling with the share? This goes back to what I was that I, what I mentioned earlier, where uh, she has a con- she has these conversations with director of their sub office of the, of DARPA, where you know he says, "Oh, the the chair can be used to prevent school shootings, to prevent murders and things," and she says, "It's too much power. This shouldn't exist. This chair should be destroyed." Which, as we've learned, is a bit more complicated because these dead memories come back. And, you know, she in in earlier in the book, she goes back to say no to Slade's offer. But because eventually the great, the, the you know, the fake memories come back, Slade then learns how to build yeah, the chair himself yeah. anyways. So at this point in the book, you can't get rid of the chair. It's always going to be a thing if somebody remembers how yes, to make yes. it. And so she she's like, I want this to be to not exist. And this shouldn't be a thing. We shouldn't have this power. And the director keeps saying but we need to be we need to be good guys and use it and prevent school shootings and the like. And then that's where the book just kind of continues from there until some more things yes, happen. Yes. And and it also specifies that they won't go past five days into the past. Except they, they do break that for one mission. But other than that, they're not supposed to go past five days because otherwise that could create too big of a ripple throughout the rest of reality. To go back to what you were saying earlier about like, oh, the dead memories and such. There's a, a quote that goes, I can't go back and stop myself from being born. Someone else can, and then I become a dead memory. But there's no grandfather paradox or any temporal paradox when it comes to the share. Everything that happens, even if it's changed or undone, lives on in dead memories. Cause and effect are still alive and well. I just feel like that adds a little more flesh out nuance to how this, like, how this sci-fi works. Oh, also, I forgot to mention, when you're in that hotel when Barry and Helena are sneaking through it, there's a quote that also goes, The walls of this elevator are old, smoke-stained mirrors, and staring into them creates a recursive illusion. So I just like, you know, how that drops it in recursive, you know, like, the title of the book, Recursion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a nice, nice old quote. An infinite number of Barry and Helena's in elevator cars, bending away through space. Ah, oh, but, okay, yeah, so back to, to DARPA, so yeah, so doing the missions... And so actually, there's something I wanted to touch on. You remember how earlier when I was talking about what my initial ideas of the book were with it, you know, being memories and fake memories and, you know, some evil entity trying to control the world with that and how I thought that might be a subtextual uh, reading of how, you know, the world has changed today with things like deep fakes and AI. And I think that definitely does apply to that concept of the book just being about memories, but with the time travel, it still kind of applies because I, I, I highlighted this. If memory is unreliable, if the past and present can simply change without warning, then fact and truth will cease to exist. How do we live in a world like that? So it, even though 
the the sci-fi concept has changed from just pure memory to memory and time travel that subtextual theme still applies yeah, yes yeah definitely i can i can see that it's just like yeah imagine living in that kind of world where yeah all these these false memories uh, you say imagine but i mean i guess, I guess you know i guess like you know the false memories you know just like oh if they were always hitting your head like that then i guess imagine but like oh I might not be on TikTok anymore, but I still vividly remember those AI deep fakes of, of the presidents playing Minecraft. Right, right. Oh, I forgot about those. You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm still on TikTok and I have not seen those pop up in a long time. And they, they're, they're, pretty, they're, they're pretty convincing. I mean, obviously, I know they're fake, but, but their speech patterns are pretty vividly okay, mimicked. But, okay, but maybe not those. I haven't seen those, but... The AI song covers, now those are things that I see pop up a lot. And even for stuff like AI Spongebob, Squarepants characters, singing songs. And it's creepy how, like, the voices do sound a lot like the characters, or just, like, other voices, too. And it's just like, oh, oh dear, this is worrisome. That's what I say, man. You say imagine living in a world like that. Yeah, we yeah, already live yeah. in a world like that. And it's also, it's also dangerous, because here's the thing, like, the songs, like, when I hear the songs, it's like, oh, the songs are kind of, like, funny to listen to on one hand, but on the, also on the other hand, it's terrifying because the technology exists, and even, like, with the... Have you seen the whole AI... Well, okay, you probably haven't, actually, but maybe you've heard of it still. The AI Pixar Disney trend of people taking the photos, like, Disney-fying them or Pixar-fying them. Have you heard of that trend with AI? I mean, I've seen that, like, uh... Uh, the AI filters, yeah, and, and even, but even then, like that's still, while it's definitely worrying in the sense of like, oh, AI is stealing art and using it to uh, feed their neural networks so that they can learn more and more. Yeah, that sucks. It's unhealthy and and it's not good art and it's not real art because machines can't create. My fears are, you know, a deep fake video of Joe Biden saying we're gonna nuke gaza yeah that's my worry because that's a thing now you you don't know like these videos can be so convincing and and we're still at the you know the early stages of this what happens 10 20 30 years from oh, now yeah. when these th this technology is even more advanced and more indiscernible from real life yeah i think that's why that's why when i see news on social media i do i'm i'm more diligent than i used to be about double checking it double-checking the sources, and like, okay, let's, let's see, is this, is this true, right? Or is this just, is this just like, is it fake? Is it propaganda? You know, I, I gotta double-check everything. Be vigilant. Okay, so DARPA, the little DARPA organization, keeps doing their missions, and they also are getting some pressure from the outside, this little organization with, with uh, Helena and the leader, Jean Shaw, and the other members, because they're getting pressure from other agencies in the U.S., to use this share instead of trying to ward them off. But then it comes a point where they've done so many missions and prevented so many disasters, like, you know, like a school shooting and a suicide bombing at the London Underground, that it ends up building up all of these dead memories and it ends up heading everyone around the world at a specific time. And not just like even like gradually, it's just like all at once, these memories. Then there comes a point where Helena is just driven along with some of the members of her team. But then there's like some uh, explosion, maybe a car crash, and then a flooding, and then Helena is killed, but then returns to her apartment, and all of that is a dead memory. But then she looks out the window as a bridge blows up, 
we end on reality ships again, so that so that the Grand Central Terminal was never bombed, and then tons of people are jumping to their deaths, and the schematics for the share, the tank, the software, the protocol, it all leaked. Someone had hacked into Marcus Slade's servers at Hotel Memory. So now there's reality shifts happening all over the world. There's a company in Sao Paulo that's using a share, their own share for tourism. The Chinese and Russian governments now possess the technology. And WikiLeaks connected the share to the government. It's like, what the hell? What the hell? And it also stated that being in a memory share war is worse than being in a nuclear war. Because in a nuclear war, you don't use the nukes because once you launch them, your opponents will do, will do the same, and the threat of retaliation is too great a deterrent. But in this kind of war with memory shares, it's actually an advantage to use it first so that you can rewrite history to your liking. Mm-hmm. It's, it, this, is, uh, this is the point where the shit yep. hits the fan. They still have the share, so now Helena hops into it and returns to her 16 year old self back in October 15th. 1986, and so at that point, she like she takes out her journal and writes an entry in it to be like, you know, you have 33 years to find some way to stop all this from happening. And then, so real quickly, I highlighted here something when she does this trip back into her teenage self. She keeps thinking, "I'm not driving. I'm not doing any of this." As the truck speeds down the highway back towards home, a darkness is creeping in at the edges of her vision. The front range and lights of Boulder dimming away and getting smaller as if she's falling slowly into a deep well. She wants to scream to stop this from happening, but she's just a passenger in her own body now, unable to speak or smell or feel a thing. The sound of the radio is little more than a dying whisper, and all at once, the pinprick of light that was her awareness of the world winks out. Which is really dark, because that means every time they've been doing memory shifting, they're killing their old self. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. So every time somebody has gone back in the chair, they're essentially killing their old consciousness. Which is terrifying. I feel like... And this goes uh, this goes back to uh, another Christopher Nolan uh, comparison, The Prestige. Oh! Oh, The Prestige! Okay, wait, maybe that's what I was thinking of. Okay, yeah, because I because when you when you were reading that part, I was like, wait, this is reminding me of something of some other movie or TV show or book that's used the same trope, and I'm like, okay, maybe it's maybe it's prestige I'm thinking of. Okay, oh my god, that's right. Oh my goodness, because <gasps> yeah, it's technically Helena, but that 16 year old version of Helena is dead. That consciousness doesn't exist anymore. And she keeps doing this too, and and well, I mean, it happens. It happens for everyone. It happens for everyone who's doing the memory shifting. Oh my god. I'm curious. Is there, are there any other examples you can think of? Because I swear, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm trying to think of another example of the show. But can you think of anything? The Prestige is the first one that comes to mind. But aside from that one, not immediately. Uh, I'm sure it's definitely being used in some other form of, of science fiction or, or, or fiction. Okay, yeah. uh, because it plays that, that theme of, of, you know, consciousness. What is it? what constitutes you is it your memories is it your thinking of consciousness at that given moment uh so it it, it it's definitely happened in, a, in some other science fiction yeah. i'm sure and even you know speaking with you know while we're talking about like that what constitutes you and your identity dark matter definitely plays around with that to a heart-wrenching and sometimes grisly effect 
Which, again, again, Dark Matter, Dark, Dark Matter is, you know, quite good, you know, yeah. I, I'm going to put it on my to-read list. I I really, uh, especially after reading Recursion, I want to read more yeah. of his work. Now book five. So then, once we're in book five, we switch over to Barry's perspective in 2019. And at first, he's he's out in the desert. It was hot enough. And he remembers doing the raid on Slade's building and getting shot to death. And now he's got all the memories of his life in this current timeline rushing into his head. He remembers uh, when Helena, he remembers when, when they first met at a bar and she said to him, you look like you want to buy me a drink. And Helena had predicted multiple events to prove to Barry that she knows how the future will unfold. And they've been constructing the memory share all the time, trying to prevent humanity from learning how to use it. But your experiments haven't produced any, any useful results. And to the fault of memories, of all that had happened, hits everyone. When it turned on the news, humanity is a mess. Wars breaking out. There's mass suicide. Apparently, hospitals are taking in patients that are suffering from catatonia. And now Helena is like, you know, crap, I'm going to have to travel back in time again and try to wipe out the memory share's existence. Again, all over again. And she pushes for her and Barry to not be together in the next timeline because she feels like it's just too much torture for him, but he wants to be with her. And so they get pursued by this helicopter, either government helicopter or state helicopter, where they go to a bunker, and she goes into the deprivation tank, and right as the soldiers break into the bunker, then the reality shifts to Denver. And basically, this, this reality shifting happens a, a few more times, where it's like, Barry's in a reality with, with Helena, he gets some memories back. War breaks out. Get back into his observation tank. How did I go in there? Watch rinse and repeat. And so I do have another nitpick here where the book, he chooses to send Helena back each time the author does. Why didn't, logically speaking, if this was a real situation, I would, I would say, okay, this turn, it's Helena's turn. This, this time, it's me, Barry's turn. If I was mm. the characters. Because, you know, the the book says that, you know, you keep going back and it's, it compounds on your brain and, it, you know, it causes more stress on your brain uh, and your consciousness. And, and we, we eventually learn later on in, in the loops that Helena does it so much that she just can't handle it anymore and she dies. Uh, you know, why did they never stop, like, switch off? Like, this time it's my turn, this time it's your turn. Because the other thing is, like, you know, the, the, you know, if Barry does travel back to after they've met, Helena still has all of her knowledge of at least the most recent timeline. And then Barry would then also have his knowledge of the most recent timeline. And they would be able to work towards the solution better. But that's a nitpick. But, wait, wait, though. I thought I, so my thinking was that Helena wouldn't have, ha- wouldn't have her memories until this point where the dead memories hit everyone, though. Well, that's what I'm saying is is if they switch off, Barry doesn't go back all the way to like 1986. He only goes back to oh. right after they meet at the bar where she already knows him because she's traveled back that that earlier mm. time. So that means she knows about the chair at that point. Well, she has traveled. If he if he traveled back, would he go to the timeline where she had traveled back and had retained her memories or would he have, or would he, or would he meet Helena? Who doesn't possess those memories yet? Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying is he, if he got, if he did go back, he would have to go back to a point after they've already met. Oh. So he can't go back too far. Uh, but if he goes back 
far enough that she knows everything that's going on. And then he would also know everything that's going on because he doesn't know until the attacks start happening. Yeah, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to work this all, all out in my brain because I was also thinking... She has knowledge to be able to like wipe out the share. She knows how to build it. She, she might know how to deconstruct it, whereas Barry doesn't have her scientific knowledge. Because that's the thing, is that she goes back all the way to 1986 and has knowledge of everything that has happened up until at least the DARPA attack, right? Yes, yes. So, she lives her life again, goes with Barry, and they're in Arizona. They get attacked, and then she goes back again. That's good. That works. The second time, when they're in Denver, logically speaking, if I was one of the characters, I would say, okay, it's your turn now. In this second point with Denver, Barry goes back. Helena still remembers everything up until Arizona. And then uh, Barry goes back and now knows everything too. And then they reach the third timeline. Well, I say third. This is like the 20th or 30th timeline. But in this specific situation, third timeline, which I don't remember what it was after Denver. And we should mention as well that Denver ends with a nuclear attack on all major U.S. Yeah. cities. So Denver gets attacked. Oh my attacked. god, Helena and Barry uh, even like to get, to get radiation poisoning. It burns, her hair is falling out, she pukes. Oh my god. And so yeah, then that's where Helena goes back again and the reality shifts. But logically speaking, if I was a character experiencing this in real life, you know, I've, you know, the yeah. caveat of this is yeah. fiction, I would say, hey, me as Barry, this, it, let me go back this time to ease the burden on your brain. And that way I can help you because I would know in the past okay. as well. Because at that, by that, by the logic of the book, Helena should already know at least to, up to a certain extent when they meet at the bar. Because otherwise, she yes, wouldn't yeah. be at the bar. So the logic of the book is a little complicated here. And and logically speaking, they should have switched off going back yeah, in time. I, I can see that. I can see that. Yes, I'm still trying to figure it all out. But yes, I, I can see that happening. Granted. What I'm thinking logically doesn't translate to the best writing, so I understand why Blake Crouch did yeah. what he did, but the logic would be, let's switch off timelines, that way the burden is less on yeah, both yeah. of us. And then, so yeah, they keep going through these apocalyptic events after Denver, uh, I think a total of, what, six or seven times? Something like that. There's, a, uh, there's also until- one timeline where Barry is, is, where Barry is by himself. Just within Manhattan, too. So I think about like five or six times uh helena decides you deserve a chance to live without me and uh he was not happy about that he was in manhattan and then so when they do that he realizes i need to figure out what slade knows because apparently slade had made some insinuation that you need to stop thinking linearly there is a way to erase all of this if you don't think linearly but unfortunately in that timeline slade has died of of his addiction uh, because in the in the very original timeline, Marcus Slade was an addict who ended up getting a lucky break and working with Helena for the first time. Uh, and then in this new timeline, obviously Helena never hired him because she never went to work for that company. Slade's already dead, so Barry calls Jiwoon, uh, uh, yeah, Jiwoon, who now has his fake memories back and gives Barry just enough information so that in the next timeline. <gasps> Uh, he works with Helena to kidnap Slade before he ever becomes addicted to drugs. They hold him hostage for years and then interrogate him once his fake memories come back. How do we stop okay, but this? It wasn't, it was a bit more complicated than that though, just a bit. Because, okay, so because he got, he got on one timeline, 
when he was in Manhattan and he wasn't with Helena. Helena didn't meet him because he was like, yeah, you know, you can be by, you can be alone. He got the info from Ji Woon. Then the next timeline. Then he has to spend that timeline when he has the dead memories with him. He tells the information. He transfers it to Helena. And then the next timeline. Then that's when they've kidnapped Slade. So even just to do something like transferring the information, it takes a whole timeline because Barry can't transfer it until he actually has knowledge when he has that memory. And that goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. The logic of if they switch off, that wouldn't have yes. been a problem. Although, also we should note, it's getting to a point where the dead memories, they seep in slowly now because there's so many false timelines building up on top of each other that it's like, it's kind of like, it takes time to sink into your brain all the information, all of the memories. So I think this is about the sixth timeline reset and this time they're in San Francisco. Yeah. They have Marcus Slade based off of the information that uh, Ji Woon gave to, yeah, to Barry. Before uh, OG last Christmas. And... and so they explain to uh, Marcus, what you've done has led us down a path of ruin. We're stuck in loops of apocalypses. You need to understand that we need to stop this. And at first, Slade is reticent to, you know, help them uh, until they show him footage of, of the nuclear attack starting to happen. And then that's where he goes, you need to stop thinking about this linearly again. You need to go back to the beginning. Yeah. And Barry goes, Helen has already gone back to 1986 before any of this has happened. He goes, no, the real beginning. When I killed Helena in the, in the deprivation chamber the first time on the original yeah, timeline. Yes, mm-hmm. Go back as close to that date as possible and stop me. And that's where it clicks for Barry. Unfortunately, as that's happening, I think the timeline ends because of another apocalyptic event. And Helena's uh, already gone, too. When Slade reveals this information, Helena's already gone. She's gone to the to the deprivation tank. So again, it's like, we gotta wait some more time to transfer the damn information. And so it goes to the seventh timeline where they're in Antarctica. Yes, yeah, the research station, Antarctica. And this is when Barry, he's in here, he finds his TV with Helena's face on it. as a video of her. It's a little 51st Dates uh, reference. Yes. <gasps> because we learned, oh, she's gone already. And she had made this video a few years ago to be like, hey, you know, I'm dying. And don't, co- don't come back for me. You know, I really enjoyed spending my life with you. And there's a quote from her where she says, I would say it was worth it to accidentally build a world-destroying share because it brought you into my life. But that's probably bad for one. It's also heartbreaking to learn to learn that when she was like, "Oh, don't come back to me, Barry." We learned Barry had already done that. Apparently, when he had when he had found her dead, he ended up using the share multiple times to go back like a, a month to spend more time with her. Killed himself ten times specifically just to do that. So basically, yeah, one, one month per time, spending ten months in total just staving off her death. I mean, because at this point in the book, they've lived seven lifetimes together and they're more well not seven six because that there was that one timeline where she decided to give him a chance to live a life by himself and you know they've they've can you imagine six lifetimes with one person oh my god that is so daunting to consider oh my god and especially because i think by the third or fourth barry literally says there's no surprise there's nothing new we are the person we are she knows everything about me. Uh, She's only with me because she loves me at that point. Uh, and she's the one who usually like, tries to push him away. Like, hey, you don't have to do this. But he's like, no, I want to stay with you. I want to do this with you. Uh, so he sees the video, and then 
the apocalypse is going to start all over again. And he starts philosophizing to himself, musing over the nature of time. And then he downs some whiskey and some oxycodone while sitting next to Helena's grave outside. Oops. And then he finally, finally remembers how talk he had of Slade in the previous timeline. See, see the memories are coming slowly. They trickle in slowly. So then now he remembers it. So he goes back to the station. He's racing against the oxy-whiskey combo. And he records a strong memory of Megan's birthday to use, like, oh, this, this, the synaptic number is just barely into the safe zone for this memory to be something that can activate the, the process. And so I think we might have actually forgotten to mention this for listeners is that what Slade's solution is, is to go back to the original timeline. You have to go back into the dead memories, which earlier in the book, I think we might have also failed to establish. If you go back into a dead memory, there's a high risk of dying because you're not supposed to go into that dead right, memory. Uh, Reed. That's uh, what happened with Reed, remember? When he, when he tried to tra- travel yeah. back to the dead memory of getting the tattoo. Yep. Exactly, yeah. So uh, the solution is to do something extremely dangerous. Uh, so Barry selects that memory of m- talking to Julia at that diner for Megan's 26th yes. birthday after she's already died at 13. Yeah. And that's why earlier in this podcast, I said, li- listeners think of this at the start as the start of the book, because that's where he goes back to because it's the starting point of the original timeline where, oh, I need to go back to kill Slade or not. Well, not kill. Stop Slade uh, before he starts all yes, of this. Yes. Oh, so he does that. He goes into the deprivation tank and just like it's a whole, it's a whole process. It's just there are a few paragraphs that are just dedicated to him going through this process of just going back through time and through through reality and again, like what I said before about how sensual this book is in that sense, like how it makes, how it fleshes out his experience on the senses. Again, I just really, really appreciate it. And it makes you feel like, it almost makes me feel like, like, like I'm going through this myself. Like I'm going through the fabric of reality and time and space. Oh, for sure. And then also as well, with what he's living through with these dead memories at this point in the book, uh, he's starting to have that realization of, of one of the other themes of the book, which I highlighted here. The thought comes almost like a prayer. I don't want to look back anymore. I'm ready to accept that my existence will sometimes contain pain. No more trying to escape either through nostalgia or a memory chair. They're both the same fucking thing. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And well, and this is also where, um, where I was talking about earlier, where you, uh, complained a little bit about the trope of, of things being destined uh, in a time travel story with, uh, with Julia and Barry is that there's that resolution uh, where in, at the end of the book, he goes, you know what? I'm glad we lived through everything together. You know, we were destined to fail, but that doesn't mean that I regret any of the time that I spent with you. Uh, and she, and he tells her more about uh or actually i don't remember if he does or not at this point in the book but he's lived all these timelines with julia without julia with megan without megan and he he's giving some closure to julia because at at this point in the book julia doesn't know what's the word i'm looking for you know she's been wondering for years was it something i did did does barry regret ever meeting me and barry gives her that closure like I I appreciate that the things that I lived through with you, you know, our love was short 
but it, it uh, meant something to me. Yes, yes. And there's also a, and there's a quote I'll read here as he's re-entering reality where it says, and he's in the cafe again. The waters of the Hudson turned blue and began to flow. Color enters the sky, the faces of the customers, buildings, every surface. He feels the cool air of morning coming off the river into his face. He smells food. The world is suddenly vibrant, brimming with the sound of people laughing and talking all around him. He's breathing, he's blinking, smiling and crying, and moving at last toward Julia. And the important huh. thing to note, note here as well with that quote is that he did go back into the, the dead memory, which was gray and lifeless and dull. And that's why that quote is so important, because it's him succeeding and finding, you know, the, the sensations of the memory to be real and full of life yeah, and compared color. Compared to what, what we had described before, like, like film was still, as it had been worded earlier at the start of the book. And yep, so now we have uh, the epilogue, and we're back in 2018 with Barry. In this world, FMS never plagued it, and Ross Peter didn't jump off a building to a desk. Barry and Helena have never met, and Barry, you know, as we said before, he was talking with Julia, expressing his forgiveness to her, and appreciating all the time they had together. And then Barry, the next day, Barry heads off to meet, to meet with Slade. Here, he tells Slade he knows about his plan, then goes to Lee, but Slade tries to shoot him. However, his gun is, em his gun is empty, because Barry had broken in earlier and loaded the chamber with some empty shell casings, and he wanted to see what Slade was capable of. And now, this is when he takes the opportunity to kill Slade. Which, yeah, it's like, he, you know, he wanted to see, like, yeah, you know, is he, you know, is he really gonna be nefarious? Is he gonna try to kill me? And yes, he did try to kill me, so, yeah, I, I gotta handle him now, before he kicks off all of that timey-wimey crap. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we cut to Barry going to a bar and seeing Helena here working on her laptop. And he goes up to her and it cuts off right before he says something. And the way it specifically ends is questions avalanching through his mind. Would he know me? Would he believe me? Would he love me? Scared, accelerated, senses heightening, heart strumming, he turns finally to Helena who, feeling his attention, looks over at him through those jade-green eyes, and he says, and that's where it cuts off. And I get why Blake Crouch says that, but because, you know, the relationship through Barry and Helena is so integral to the book, it just hurts, because I want to know the resolution. Like, do, do they fall back in love without her having lived these multiple lifetimes with him and him having that information? Uh, uh, it's, I, like I get why you I, do it. I know, it and I even and I even wanted to know, just know, like, hey, like, did he say you look like you want to buy me a drink, or does he say the opposite? Did he flip the wording around? You know, even just knowing that, but it cuts off like even before he says anything. And I guess I would say, I, I guess another little gripe I do have is that I don't, I don't know if there's a way to do this. But I feel like I wish Helena could have retained her memories of what had happened because she had done so much throughout the book. That if you're like, oh, it's too bad, she doesn't have the memories and loses her, like, loses some agency and that sense right at the ending. And, uh, you know, I just wish she could have remembered what, ha what had happened, you know. I mean, if she did, that kind of would have invalidated the, the stuff I that know, Barry did. I know, I know. I mean, keep in mind, he goes back to destroy all the memories so that nobody remembers the memory chair. I know, I know. <laughs> but still, it's like, she, she, she did so much crap and I would have just loved if she could remember at least a bit of it. Uh, but it's a, it's a little great. 
Trust me, I know. I know. Well, that is recursion by Blake Krause. What is there, What a ride. And also notable that in the acknowledgments, the author uh, does say about how he had named these characters in honor of real-life people. So, for example, Helena Smith, he named her after a British author, Helen Smith. Or Amor Towers, who was the architect who built the Big Bend in the book. He was named after the author of the same name, the author of A Gentleman in Moscow. Just so it was intriguing reading about that. I always like getting little details about how the authors create their worlds, name their characters, stuff like that. But any final thoughts on this sci-fi thriller? I mean, like I said, I I love this book. It was so good. I mean, it just has it has those themes of you know philosophy and and you know what is your consciousness and what is existence and what constitutes you. Uh, it was just it was so good. It is. It so is. Good. I, again. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed it, and I, and I do want to read, upgrade, another Blake Crouch book, see if, see how that holds up, and I would be very interested in seeing an, an adaptation of this. I do know that Dark Matter is supposed to be getting a TV show adaptation. Last I heard, it was supposed to be an Apple TV Plus, but I feel like I may have ended up falling by the wayside. Let me just check. Uh, Dark Matter, I'm just looking this up. There's a, there's a different TV show called Dark Matter, but that's not the show I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, it's still upcoming, it says here. Oh, yeah, that's right. Joel Edgerton will be in it, and Jennifer Connelly. Oh, yeah, that's the premiere on Apple TV+. Plus. Okay. I, I hope okay. I hope this TV show does come. I, I haven't I haven't heard anything else about it all, all that recently, so I hope it's still... I hope it hasn't been canned or anything. You know, I wanted to air sometime, and I think I'll definitely read the book. As for TV, I'm not the biggest TV person, so you know whether or not it becomes a TV show is is okay. Um, but I hope that Recursion does become a movie. Uh, that that would be more interesting. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, In fact, speaking of which, let me just double check this. It's a because I remember hearing about how there was going to be an adaptation for Netflix, but that may have been canned. Let me see. Oh, that's right. It was it was Shonda Rhimes who was behind this, developing Recursion for Netflix. Yeah, I'm just seeing like I'm seeing articles like oh, Recursion coming to Netflix, but these are like from like 2020 or like you know from years ago. Nothing, nothing recent about any Recursion stuff on Netflix. Oh yeah, Mad Reeves. That's right, Mad Reeves was behind development for Recursion. But again, nothing like there's nothing new for the Recursion adaptation supposedly on Netflix. Oh no. That's sad. Well, hopefully it comes someday. Well, hopefully something happens, and hopefully it's uh, a company that cares about theatrical distribution. Yes, yes, that'd be great. Uh, well, if we don't have anything else to say about Recursion, anything else? Not that I can think of, no. Alrighty, then. And if anyone is listening to this, and you haven't read the book, and you still listen to the show, still go read it. Like, you know, just enjoy the ride for yourself. Uh, and now I think it's time for us to Segue onward to Good Word. This is the segment where each of us gets to recommend something. A book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, music, anything we want. So, Dax, what is your Good Word? So like I was telling you earlier, I, you know, I, have, I have struggles reading uh, consistently, but lately with reading Recursion, I've, I've caught the reading bug a bit. Uh, so right now I'm working my way through Columbine. Uh, by Dave Cullen, which, trigger warning, it is a very dark, depressing book that has to do with the Columbine shooting. So, you know, check the specific trigger warnings if you have any. Um, I myself don't have any triggers, so I 
you know, I'm lucky that I can experience any art without issue. But if you have anything, check that first. Uh, but if you don't, or if you, and even if you do, you just check them. It's a, so far I'm about 15% through the book and it is really good. It's like I said, really dark and really difficult to stomach, but if you can, it's a good book so far. Mm, nice. Nice. And as for my good word, I'll pick the 2017 thriller Forgotten, which I saw some time ago. I, I'm surprised I haven't given this as a good word. I saw it a month ago, but I don't know. I'm giving it now because it's a movie that has stuck with me. And basically, it's this thriller that apparently is about this, about this young guy, Jin Sok, who has moved to a new place with his parents and his elder brother. And at this home, Strange events begin to unfold, and I'm keeping it vague because I feel like this is definitely a movie where knowing little about it helps with the journey that the poetry went to. I'll admit, when, when the first act was unfolding, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if I like this. This is feeling very formulaic. But then, the movie takes a sharp turn into some unforeseen territory, and it's just like twisty, turny, and it ends up being this really bleak, heart-wrenching movie that I just, again, just like go into it with little knowledge of what happens. I really enjoyed it, amplified by the strong performances and cinematography. Again, I, I really loved it. It even falls, like there's a specific subgenre that it falls into, but I can't even name that, what that subgenre is, without it being a spoiler. But just know like, it heads in a certain direction, a specific direction. And I just really love this this movie. So again, Forgotten, the South Korean psychological thriller. Is it on? Is it still on Netflix? Let me double check. It is. I think it is on Netflix. If I'm seeing it correctly. Again, Forgotten. That's my good word. Well, Dax, we've given our good words now. So I'm gonna thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast to cover recursion. And now you get to uh, promote yourself promote your social media handles, even though you have very, very few, but still, whatever you want to promote. But yeah, uh, like I said earlier, I don't have any social media. So if you are interested in keeping up with me, I am on uh, Letterboxd at AppleDax, and I'm on StoryGraph, also the same handle at AppleDax. Yeah, if so if you want to keep up with uh, what I'm watching or what I'm reading, feel free to catch me there. Nice. And as for my socials, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at two underscore sense critic. You can follow my personal accounts on Twitter, GoodPods, StoryGraph, Letterboxd, and TikTok at Arthur underscore and 18. You can find me on Goodreads at Arthur Howell. If you want to email me, you can reach me at email two sense critic at yahoo.com. You can also check out my blog at two sense critic.com and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, all of those services, and make sure you do the ratings and reviews, especially because they really do help with the spreading the podcast to more listeners. Yes, spread it to more ears. And once again, Dax, thank you so much for coming back on. This was a blast. I really wanted to cover recursion on the show for a while, so great to finally achieve that. I'm glad you chose me to, to read it because it's a really good book. Yes. And until next time. Stay healthy and stay strong.